And if you're here without a Bible this morning, there's men coming up the aisle. And uh, just raise your hand and get their attention, and they'll, they've got some Bibles uh, to hand out, and they'll get one to you. We want you to not only hear the word this morning, but to see it with your own eyes. Mark chapter uh, 12, uh, beginning in verse 41. On Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and uh, we come to this event, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. And then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. And so Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For, that's a because word, they all put in of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we live in this world that is constantly endeavoring to fashion us after itself. And we're glad to be able to always turn to your word and to submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit and ask that you would fashion our thinking, Lord, and our feeling and our doing and our purposes in life and and fashion our spirit, Lord, rather than this world. And so, Lord, we desire to be sanctified. Jesus, you prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You prayed to the Father. And we pray that today, sanctify us this morning by your truth in this very important part of the Christian life. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In this passage of the Bible, we come to one of many passages in the Gospels where Jesus taught his disciples on the subject of giving financially or giving materially to the world I mean to the Lord he doesn't in this passage he doesn't it isn't a comprehensive handling of his teaching but he brings out one single great point about our giving to the Lord that would make all of the rest of the teaching incomplete if this wasn't built into our lives and built into our thinking also I think that surely the worldwide economic meltdown of the last two uh, years should have revealed to everyone, but I think especially to Christians, that we need God's instruction concerning money and concerning finances. Every bit as much as we need His instruction in every other area of our lives. The unsaved world knows no more about how to view money or how to use money than it does about salvation or spirituality or the meaning of life or morality. Only God knows how to safely and effectively handle and use money. And thus it's very important that every area of our lives be fashioned by 
God's word and his truth concerning this area of our lives is as wise and it is, is as binding as his truth that he speaks to us in any and every other area of our Christian lives. The Bible declares that God's commandments are not burdensome, and they're not. Obedience to God's commandments are uh, the way of achieving true blessing in life. I'll tell you the stories that I could tell you having known the Lord for almost 30 years and pastoring for almost 25 years, of the blessings that have happened in people's lives as they have come to obey the Lord in this area of finances. The Bible also says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And I could tell you heartbreaking stories. I could tell you stories for two hours from personal relationships with people through the years of what has happened to people when they have chosen to ignore obedience to God in this area of their lives. I, of course, I have no agenda. We're not going to take a second offering or anything like that this morning. But I really approach the older I get as a Christian and the more I see the casualties um, from disobedience on, in this side of Christians' lives, um, the more unflinching I become in the teaching of, of this particular uh, subject. It's so important to be obedient to the Lord uh, in our giving, and we'll see exactly why um, as, as we go on. From what um, I have seen in the lives of those who have uh, chosen to be willfully disobedient to God's instruction on the subject of money, I, I just, as I said, I would just beg any Christian that if I ran into someone, a Christian on a, a gas station or a Costco in any place, and I was to know that they were being disobedient to the Lord in the area of giving, in, quite apart from any calling as a pastor, I would beg, beg, beg them to become obedient in that area in their life. It's so important. Our financial security in this world is based upon our strict obedience to God's teaching on this subject, and then our obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit individually in our lives related to this subject. You think about the world, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if the world remains financially, uh, not only extremely volatile financially for a long time, but maybe even till the time of the rapture of the church. You look at the geopolitical alignment of the world. You look at where the oil, the kind of men and leaders that control the oil supply of the world, not just in the Middle East, but in Russia, Venezuela, other places. These are men that are determined to keep the world destabilized for their agenda and their purposes. You take a look at what we have done as a nation, and it's just heartbreaking. To take a nation as wealthy and with the natural resources that we have and to have literally, in my lifetime, absolutely thrown away 
not only our financial sovereignty, but with it our uh, sovereignty in every other area that is funded by a healthy financial policy, we have given away our sovereignty to other nations. We've sold our future to Japan, to China, and anyone else that was willing to buy up large amounts of our debt. And so this world that we live in financially, not only is it unstable, but it is fragmenting before our very eyes. And the only way we're going to have any kind of peace in our lives financially is by knowing that we are right with God in this area of our lives, just like any other area uh, of, of our lives. In order to know peace, the object of our peace has to be greater than all of the forces that would rob us of our peace. And the only one that is greater than the financial instability of this world and the general instability of this world is God himself. There will only be peace in our lives on the financial side of things as we recognize and are able to put our heads down on the pillow at the end of the day and say, Lord, as best as I can understand your word and as best as I can hear the leading of your Holy Spirit, financially my life or my family is exactly, uh, the finances of my family is exactly where it needs uh, to be. Surely, the disappointing track record of the world in this area of finances and this meltdown and the problems that just are criminal and yet I haven't seen anyone brought to court yet on these issues. But this whole thing that we've experienced even recently, if any good can come out of it, it ought to have humbled every citizen of the world and humbled every single Christian so that we're eager to hear God's word on this subject and eager to obey his word. And I know that I am. Now the context here of what's happening is at this time in Jesus' life and his, his public ministry, he is less than a handful of days from dying on the cross for our sins. That's what lies out in front of him. That's what he knows is just literally hours away in terms of his future. Now you think about the weight that must have been on Jesus at that time, thinking about what was just hours and days away. Immediately behind him has been a morning filled with conflict and hostility and opposition. As he was in the area of the temple uh, in Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover, probably in the court of the Gentiles where he was teaching his disciples early one morning and as he taught them, that group of disciples then expanded into a great multitude listening to what it is that he had to teach. And one after another, the three great sects of Judaism in that day came forward with their leadership asking Jesus a series of questions in order to trap him in order to get him to stumble in some kind of an answer related to a controversial subject where it seemed like there could be no right answer that he would give based upon the craftiness of the question that they had asked of, of him. And, and so they come in and they do this with the endeavor to 
uh, humiliate him and also to scatter his, his following. And Jesus then successfully responds to all of these questions and all of this uh, trapping. And then Jesus unleashed a long series of rebukes or woes upon the hypocrisy of the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees. And if anyone thinks that Jesus enjoyed denouncing the Pharisees and the scribes, number one, that's a person who has never had to denounce hypocrisy publicly the way he did. And number two, it's a person that doesn't know Jesus very well. Jesus himself said at the end of the rebuke that he hadn't come to Jerusalem with the intent of confronting the existing Jewish religious system and pronouncing woes upon them, but he had come as a hen endeavoring, as a hen endeavors to take its chicks and put it under his, their, his, her wings for protection. That's what he had come to Israel uh, in order to, to do. So it's been a very difficult morning for Jesus, full of open hostility and rejection directed at him. So he's been through a lot, and there's a lot that is coming right down the road, just days away, and thus Jesus is due for a little bit of encouragement. And encouragement comes, and it comes from a very, very unexpected quarter in the form of a widow giving to God in this absolute sea of religious hypocrisy that surrounded him, here was something that was very, very different. What Jesus observed, we're told in verses 41 and 42, he was sitting opposite the treasury, apparently after having taught his disciples in the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest court on the the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, and it was a place that both Jew and Gentile could gather up and, and listen to Jesus' teaching. If he went further into the series of courts, Gentiles would not have had access to him. So he's probably teaching there in the court of the Gentiles. And uh, evidently, he drew closer to the temple itself and went into the court of the women following his denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders. And maybe he had gone into that court of, of the women in order to kind of sit quietly after what he had just kind of been through in, in pronouncing these woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And against the wall in the court of the women, there were 13 trumpet-shaped uh, receptacles into which people uh, dropped their offerings. And they were called the trumpets because of their shape, evidently narrow at the, at the mouth and then wide at the bottom in order to handle the, the coinage that was uh, being put inside of it. Each one of the trumpets uh, were there for giving to a special purpose related to the daily sacrifices uh, or underwriting the uh, worship temple worship in those days. So in, you would go to one trumpet, <clears throat> excuse me, or one kind of offering box, we might call it, and put money in it that was used to buy the corn or buy the wine or the oil for the sacrifices. Another trumpet was given for receiving money for the purchase of incense and wood that would be used for the animal sacrifices. Then there were other trumpets for 
receiving the worshippers' free will offerings to the Lord. There was, it wasn't a signed giving at all. It was however the Lord wanted to use it. And as Jesus sat on a bench in that court, he watched the Passover crowd put their money into the temple treasury. In verse 41, as Jesus sat on a bench in that court, we're told that that he watched all of this going on and significantly we're told that he witnessed many who were rich who put in much. And additionally, verse 42, we're told that he also observed one poor widow who came to the receptacles and she threw in two mites. Now in those days, two mites was a little bit less than half a penny. Uh, If we were to kind of adjust it for inflation, it was basically one-sixty-fourth of a denarii. And a denarii was a a Roman coin that was paid. Uh, One denarii was the wages to a blue-collar worker, a laborer, for a full day's wages. And so if we say, well, let's let's assign a value of $100 to that today for a blue-collar laborer for a full day's work, then what she would have put in would have been the equivalent of about a dollar fifty into that offering box. Notice that we're told what we're told about this woman. She was a widow, so she's outlived her husband, which was never a good thing in those days. And as a result of it, she was also poor. In those days, to be a widow was to be very vulnerable financially, because unless your husband died and he was very, very wealthy and left you something that you could sustain yourself on for the rest of your life. But that was a very small part of the population in those days. Usually it took what both her husband and the wife were doing every day in order to put food on the table and and to sustain yourself. And so uh, in those days your family was your security. There wasn't any social security or retirement plans like that. Your family. And so she has no family uh, here in her old age. And uh, so she is, as most widows were in those days, both powerless in large part, but uh, also poor. So she gives to God from her poverty. And uh, it isn't unlikely that uh, she gave a significant portion of whatever wages that she had earned that day. Now, as Jesus watched this woman, something blessed his heart so much that he turned the whole event into a teachable moment for his, his disciples. And apparently they're a short distance away. They are watching the same thing that Jesus is watching, but they're not processing it the same way that he's processing it. So when he sees what he sees, and he knows that they're seeing the same thing, he calls them over to him so he can explain what it is that they've just witnessed and how it's viewed in the eyes of heaven, uh, viewed from in the eyes uh, of God. And so Jesus teaches his disciples on, on giving uh, from what they've just seen with their eyes. And some of these lessons that we learn from this uh, particular incident, first of all, we notice that there was a treasury. Jesus never denounced the existence of a treasury as a part of the worship of God at the temple. He wasn't embarrassed by the existence of the treasury. He wasn't troubled by the giving of God's people toward God's work. Giving 
was and is a part of the worship of the Lord. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has chosen to support His work in the world through the giving of His people. That's the way He's chosen to do it. He could have chosen to support His work in the world, I mean, a thousand uh, different ways, but He's chosen to support His work by the giving of people like us who know Him and love Him. Now, someone might wonder, why would God choose to support His work through the giving of His people? I mean, He could speak silver into existence. He can speak gold into existence. He can speak oil into existence. He can speak diamonds into existence. Why not do it that way? Just shower us with diamonds two times a year or something. Why, Why does he do it this way? And he does it this way not because it's easiest for him, but because it's best for us. And uh, more than best for us, it's necessary for us. Because every time we give to God, we give away a little bit of our selfishness, a little bit of our self-centeredness. And apart from God and the ways that He has given to us, to become conscious of our self-centeredness and to be freed from our self-centeredness, we would be terminally selfish and self-focused. And one of the things that giving does is it causes us to have a concern for someone and something that is bigger than ourselves. And so when we give, we give away a little bit of our selfishness, and most of us have a fair amount of that to give away. One of the things that happens when we give to the Lord is there is a consciousness within our spirit that we are a little bit freer for having done so. There is an impact that it has upon us spiritually, and, there's that re- and it is that recognition that I have a, a concern now for something greater than myself. Every time we give, it's an acknowledgement that all that we have has come from God. All that we have belongs to God. And I need a regular reminder of that. I need a regular reminder of that in my giving. Do you know what the alternative is to that as a Christian? It is to not give to the Lord and then have the Lord remind me through harsher measures that all that I have belongs to Him. And He is very, very good at teaching us and bringing into our lives whatever is necessary for us to realize that. Because He loves us and He doesn't want our money to be the Lord in our life, even a lowercase Lord in our lives. So, each time we give, there's that acknowledgement. Lord, everything that I have has come from you. Everything that I have belongs to you. Every time I give, there's the fresh realization that my security is not in my money, but in the Lord. And I need a constant reminder of that also. I need a regular reminder of that. Every time I give to the work of the Lord, there's that reminder that my security is not in my bank account or in the material wealth that I have. This is an acknowledgement, Lord, that my security is in you. 
that I will eat until my final day. I will have, shol- I will have shelter until my final breath. I will have clothing till my final breath. Not because of any kind of asset and liability thing that I can put on a yellow sheet of paper or figure out on the computer or something like that, but because I know that I am right with you in this area and you are faithful to your promises. Every time I give, I am putting a little bit more of my heart into heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here it is, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving to God isn't supremely about money as much as it is about my heart and making me more heavenly minded while I'm in this world. You take a person and if all of their wealth and all of their giving is into some kind of an IRA or into some kind of a stock thing or where, you watch where people put their money and every day they will turn to those pages and find out, how's it doing today? Well, the same thing happens when a person invests in the things of the Lord and lays up a treasure in heaven. There's something that really does happen in our hearts where we gain a concern for the kingdom of God. What's going on in the world? We can't wait to find out what's happening in India, what's happening in China, kingdom related, what's happening in Germany, what's happening in uh, uh, Argentina, wherever it might be. It really, really does have an effect upon our lives, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Every time I give to the Lord, there's that satisfaction of knowing that He's using my life to impact others. And what it does in giving to God is it gives me a focus, again, that's way bigger than myself, a focus as big as God's work in the world. God's work in the world is a worldwide work. My, my, my world becomes... One of the great tragedies is to see people's world become so small when money is their God. And yet when the Lord is, is our God and we give as He calls us to give, then our focus and our, our life and our consciousness is as big as the whole world. It's as big as His, His work. And it's very, very satisfying to know as a Christian that my life is, is, is engaged in uh, the work of the, wor- of the Lord all around the world. As one older Christian uh, woman said, I wouldn't trade my mail for anything. She's talking about the mail that she would get from what her giving was doing for the kingdom all around the world. And it's a wonderful thing, I think, to know that my life is vitally connected with God's work, that it's involved in something bigger than just my life. I remember early in the history of, of this church, we began to support other Christian ministry in our community and in other Christian work uh, all around uh, the world. And we wanted to 
We wanted the church, Calvary Chapel of Modesto. We wanted the fact that if it survived or if it got wiped out or if it did this or that, that whatever happened with it, that it would be connected with the larger work that God was doing all around the world. To know that we were a part of something way bigger than just uh, our little church. Someone has said concerning all of this, and uh, in, in giving to the Lord, that God isn't raising money in this, He's raising children. And it's true. It's not about the money to Him. He can make money appear and disappear in people's lives. Or in the, it's effortless to Him. It has nothing to do with the money. In all of it, it's not a, 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 a Ponzi scheme or some fundraising kind of thing. That's not what He's about. He he calls us to give the way that He calls us to give because of what it produces in our lives as His uh, children. Our need to give is far greater than God's need to receive. And number two, what we learn here, you said, I thought that was about eight right there. It was, but I I do this however I want to do this. (laughs) Number two, we notice that Jesus didn't say anything about the father being in desperate need of money. God does not need our money. Everybody tells you God needs your money. He doesn't need our money. He's fabulously wealthy. He said wealth is of no concern to him. There's only two eternal things in this whole wide world. There's only two things that are valuable that isn't going to one day melt with a fervent heat and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. That's the souls of individual men, women, and children And the Bible is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. God is not concerned about diamonds or gold or money, any of those kind of things supremely. Sometimes you'll listen to telethons and different things, and sometimes you'll hear someone say, God needs you like he's never needed you before. And it's true, only in the sense that he's never needed you before in terms of, of money. It's our privilege to give. Think of David. And King David, he was in awe of the opportunity to give to the Lord. At the end of his life, he had amassed unbelievable amounts of, of wealth and materials so that he could give it to his son Solomon to build the temple. God had called Solomon to build the temple. And this is what David uh, cried out to the Lord uh, as that kind of dedication of the materials was being done. He said, it says, First Chronicles chapter 29, I'll read it to you. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer so willingly as this, for all things come from you, and 
of your own we have given to you. The sense of privilege of being able to give to the things of the Lord. I think about how terrible life would be for me and for you as a Christian if we did not have the opportunity to give to something eternal that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, the work of God. What if we were doomed to spend every penny that we earn upon ourselves and we had no option to give to God or the things of God? It would be a terrible, terrible uh, way to live. And it is only because God is gracious and wonderful that he gives us an opportunity to invest in his work. Number three, notice that she gave the, her offering willingly. And that's how God wants any gift that's given to him by his children to be given. That's why when uh, the offering is prayed for and all, we never take an offering. The men never say unless they make a mistake or I make a mistake. This morning we're going to take an offering. We don't take anything. You don't take offerings. You receive offerings. Because it's voluntary what people give to the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he declared that God loves a cheerful giver. He said, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful literally means uh, a, a hilarious giver. When we do the offering, by all rights, we ought to hand out kazoos prior to it. And just have a Holy Ghost hoedown as the offering bags go around. And, and, and because the Lord doesn't want anything to be given to him grudgingly. And, uh, and someone may say, well, hasn't he commanded that we are to give? Yes, but if a person grinds against it, then God says to keep it. Have you ever had anybody give you something and then begrudge you for receiving it? Say, what's the first thing? You, you can't get it out of your pocket or out of your garage or out of your house fast enough to return it to them. If that's the spirit you gave it with, it will just taunt me if I continue to hold on. I don't want anything given to me that isn't given, that is given grudgingly, isn't given freely with a, a desire to bless. And God is the same way. If it's given grudgingly, it removes all the joy that He desires to receive from, from our giving. Number four, we learn that in Jesus' eyes, verse 43, that the size of the gift isn't measured supremely by the amount, but by the sacrifice that it represents. And that's probably the greatest lesson that comes out of this particular incident. When Jesus said that this poor widow has put in more than all the much that the rich had put into the treasury, that tells us that he has a different way of measuring giving. If two mites of a widow are more than the much of the rich, then heaven measures giving very, very differently than we do. And that's the point. He said, this poor widow had put in more than all of those who've given into the treasury. And he, he took all the money that the rich had, had given, and he's not putting it down. 
And he put it in one side of of the balance, and he put the two mites of the widow on the other side of the balance, and he said that the widow's two mites outweighed all of the rest. How could that be? Because he measures the gift by the sacrifice that it represents to the giver. And Jesus commended her giving because it was a real sacrifice. She gave all that she had, her whole uh, livelihood. It doesn't refer to all of her property. It doesn't mean that she didn't have an extra robe at home. It doesn't mean she was going to sleep on the streets that night. It doesn't mean she didn't have a place uh, 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 to, to, to live in at all. It just means that her giving cost her in terms of the life's basics. Now, this passage teaches us as Christians that our giving to God should represent a sacrifice on our part. It's a challenging passage, but it's intended to challenge us in that way. This also tells us that Jesus not only was aware of the amount that every single person gave there in the area of, of the treasury, but he also recognized, and only God could do this, recognized the sacrifice that each one of the gifts uh, represented to the givers. And I think it's amazing to realize that he knows all about that. Because in the offering we just took a little bit uh, received. (laughs) Just a little bit earlier. He not only acknowledged and recognized the amount, but he also recognize the sacrifice that it represented for each one of us that gave. Now, number five, I noticed that Jesus wasn't worried that now she's going to go out and starve to death as a result of having uh, done this sacrificial giving because the Lord has made promises that he will never allow any of his children, certainly never allow this kind of person to uh, starve to death. He's going to take care of our needs. Again, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, the unsaved world. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what she did. And all these things, Jesus promised, shall be added to you. And therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. No one can outgive God. Can't be done. No one in God will not be any person's debtor. Jesus, again, in Luke chapter 6, he said, Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Philippi, a church that was a giving church to him. So it's a promise for givers. And he said, and my God shall supply all your needs, not all your greed. That's the American version, I think. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Our security is not in our own bank accounts or this kind of thing. Our security is as big as his bank account is according to his riches in glory. And so clearly this woman, she did not view her money as her security, but she saw God and she saw his promises as her security in life. And I don't think anybody reaches that place in their Christian life 
in a weekend or in a year. That's something that God is working on continually in, in our lives. And she had reached that place in her life. Number six, we learn to never think that any gift is insignificant or unimportant to God. In our culture, virtually everything is measured by how big it is. Supersize it. You flat screen TVs that could take the whole back wall of the century and bigger is better almost in, in every kind of, uh, of way. And, and, and we can fight against it in this culture a little bit and we might be tempted to look at the smallness of the gift, uh, not only of this widow woman, but even the smallness of our own giving to God and wonder, well, what difference can it make? What use is it? But Jesus teaches that all giving is noticed by God, and the issue is not the size of the gift. That's not the issue to him, but the sacrifice. And I think it's very important also to realize that the Bible teaches that each one of us as Christians should be giving to the Lord. We must not allow even poverty keep us from giving something to the Lord. Now, in the United States of America, we have these kind of graduating uh, in federal income tax things and all this deal where, you know, those that make uh, the most money in our country, they allow a huge number of, uh, uh, of citizens of the United States of America not pay any federal taxes at all because it's carried by this other group. And so a mentality can kind of set in a little bit and say, well, you know, because the United States government is that way and I'm poor and we really do live from paycheck to paycheck that I don't need to give, that's just the rich people in the church are going to take care of that. And that's, that's wrong thinking. Every Christian is called to give sacrificially to the Lord, whatever, that, whatever our situation might be. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, on the first day of the week, Sunday, when they assembled for church, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper in terms of giving. Number seven, and there's only 40, so just relax here. And I think this is the, the greatest thing that we learn here, apart from the sacrifice side of, of giving. And we learn here that this is the giving that blesses Jesus. This woman blessed Jesus at a very difficult time in his ministry. All around him is hostility and opposition of the religious leaders. I mean, he's got troubles in front of him. He's got troubles behind him. And, and all of this coming against him of, of people and what he, the people he knows are going to come against him in the next few days, in the next few hours. And then in contrast to all of that is this poor widow woman. And there he sits at the treasury knowing that He's going to lay his life down on, on a cross at Calvary. And he sits there in that treasury area willing to do anything at any cost to himself for the Father's will to be accomplished in, in the earth. And no one in the whole world seemed to understand. Not even his disciples seemed to understand it. And as he's thinking about all these things, he looks out and he watches a poor widow 
drop her very life, her very livelihood, into the treasury for the Father's will to be accomplished in the world. And when he sees her, he sees a heart like his own, a woman willing to give toward what Jesus was willing to die for. And as he looks at her, he in essence is saying, she gets it. Here is someone in this whole city of Jerusalem that gets it and gets my heart. The root of the Greek word that's used for called in verse 43 is Jesus calls the disciples over to witness what he, he had and uh, had witnessed and, and to teach them a, a lesson as a result of it. That word called is a very interesting one. It means to call. It means to clamor. It means to call loudly. There is a urgency about it. When Jesus calls them over, there is an emotion behind the call. And it does my heart good to see my Savior's heart blessed and excited in the midst of all of that hostility, in the midst of all of that rejection. And because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, our sacrificial giving produces the same response in him today where he looks and says he gets it she gets it they understand what this is all about the Bible has a lot to say about giving and the account of this poor widow is an important part of that again as I said when we began without it our understanding of what giving as a Christian is all about, there would be a gaping hole in our understanding without it. Our giving is not measured supremely by the amount that is given, but by the personal sacrifice that it represents to the giver. If you're here this morning and you do not yet know Christ as your Savior, He doesn't want your money. It's interesting there in the treasury, in the court of the women, um, only Jews could get into that court of the women. No Gentiles could, could get uh, into that place. And those offering re receptacles, they were put in a place where only God's people were giving to his work. God doesn't want your money. He wants a lot more than that. He wants your life. He wants your today. He wants your tomorrow. He wants the rest of this life. He wants the life to come. He wants a personal relationship with you. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would pray with you to begin a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. And then you get to enter into the greatest life that a person can possibly live and a life that will never, ever end. Let's stand together and we'll pray.